0: Thank you very much, Irene, for ministering in music. And part of letting the Lord work in our life and ministering in our life is through Scripture. And as we interact with God's word this morning, I trust you're open, willing to hear and apply and live out God's word. There is no kingdom of God, no kingdom of Christ, without suffering. Discipleship flows from an understanding of Christ. If you watch a butterfly seeking to come out of its cocoon, you will find that there is a tremendous amount of effort involved for that to be a reality. And if you try to help the butterfly along coming out of its cocoon, you will find that you actually do harm to the butterfly because it will not be able to fly because it needs that process of coming out. You know, the struggle. If you ever watched a chick Coming out of an egg, you know that they peck and peck and peck at the shell. There's a tremendous amount of effort involved, but eventually they come out of the shell. As you think about Christ, and you think about who he is and what he has done, there was a tremendous amount of suffering in his life, and ultimately the cross, so that there could be the kingdom of God, the kingdom of Christ. We want to read together Mark chapter 9, verses 2 through 13. We have the account of the transfiguration. And the transfiguration would be Christ, his inner character, his inner being, his inner nature, coming out. But yet in the same context, he speaks of suffering, he speaks of difficulty. For Christ to... having his kingdom in the future, suffering has to come first. He talked about suffering at the end of chapter 8. The disciples didn't get it. But let's pick up with reading in verse 2 of Mark 9. After six days, Jesus took Peter, James, and John with him and led them up to a high mountain where they were all alone. There he was transfigured before them. His clothes became dazzling white, whom I love, listen to him. Suddenly, when they looked around, they no longer saw anyone with them except Jesus. As they were coming down from the mountain, Jesus gave them orders not to tell anyone what they had seen until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. They kept the matter to themselves, discussing what rising from the dead meant. And they asked him, Why do the teachers of the law say that Elijah must come first? Jesus replied, to be sure, Elijah does come first and restores all things. Why then is it written that the Son of Man must suffer much and be rejected? But I tell you, Elijah has come, and they have done to him everything they wished, just as it is written about him. As we discussed last week, the transfiguration Christ's true nature, who he really was, is coming out in the transfiguration. Elijah and Moses are on the scene, and the presence of Elijah and Moses signify that Jesus is not a walk-on in the divine economy, nor is his revelation as the Son of God. It's not an abnormality or an abnormality. arbitrary expression of the divine will. Rather, the presence of Moses and Elijah as forerunners attest to the climax of the purposeful purposeful revelation of God's Son with the history of Israel. Christ didn't just come on the scene. He was spoken of in the Old Testament. Although Moses and Elijah speak with Jesus, they do not remain with him the cloud is removed and in verse 8 only Jesus remains thus the witness of Elijah and Moses point to Jesus and cuminate in him but their witness does not rival his their word and their work are fulfilled in Christ Moses and Elijah were servants of God prophets of God Indeed, nothing less than divine witnesses to Jesus as the Son of God. And you notice also in the text that it talks about the fact that there a, a cloud appeared and enveloped them. If you're going to understand the transfiguration, we also have to understand the cloud, which throughout Scripture is a symbol of God's presence and glory. Moses on Mount Sinai provides an illuminating parallel. When Moses went up on the mountain, the cloud covered it, and the glory of the Lord settled on Mount Sinai. For six days, the cloud covered the mountain. According to Mark, the cloud enveloped or overshadowed Moses, Elijah, and Jesus. In 1 Kings chapter 8, 10 and 11, it's used to describe the cloud that filled Solomon's temple. We find that Mary, when the birth of Jesus was announced, was overshadowed. The cloud would symbolize the divine presence to the three. The cloud is the impregnating presence of God, symbolizing that Jesus, even more than in the tabernacle of old, God dwells bodily with humanity. The transfiguration reaches its climax, so to speak, when a voice came from the cloud, this is my son whom I love. Listen to him. At the baptism of Jesus, we know that a voice came from heaven. You're my beloved son. That was directed at Jesus. Here the voice is directed to Peter, James, and John. This is my son, whom I love. Listen to him. A divine revelation saying to the three, This is my son, whom I love. Listen to him. Take your Bibles and go over to 2 Peter. 2 Peter chapter 1 and verse 16. 2 Peter chapter 1 and verse 16. We find that what the disciples knew about God, what the disciples knew about Christ, was because of divine revelation. God chose to reveal himself. 2 Peter chapter 1 and verse 16. Peter says, we did not follow cleverly invented stories when we told you about the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For he received honor and glory from God the Father when the voice came to him from the majestic glory saying, this is my son whom I love, with him I am well pleased. We ourselves have heard this voice that came from heaven When we were with him and the sacred mountain. Peter later refers to the transfiguration, but the voice saying, This is my son whom I love. Listen to him. Again, listen to him recalls what Moses said. In Deuteronomy chapter 18, the Lord your God will raise for you a prophet like me. You must listen to him. And the prophet that is raised is none other than Jesus Christ. Now why would the voice from heaven say, or from the cloud rather, say listen to him? Remember that the disciples to this point think of Christ as the messiah but don't see suffering that comes with the messiah because in chapter 8 <coughs> Peter rebuked Jesus when Peter or when Jesus talked about being rejected and suffering and being killed so the voice says listen to him why because he must suffer. A proper understanding of Christ or Christology is important to discipleship. The disciples had to understand that Jesus was the Messiah and that involved suffering. Christology, correct understanding of Christ leads to discipleship. Discipleship flows from understanding Christ and who he is. The 12 being willing to die for Christ came from understanding who Christ was. Practically, we think about life today, present Christ in his being, in his character, his identity before his work of suffering the cross and the resurrection. Invite on believers to become disciples of Christ, not merely to escape hell and to go to heaven. Following Christ. The 12 were learning, being taught who Christ was. And the question are you following Jesus for who he is or what he will do? The three at this point in time are still thinking the Messiah. but no suffering. And the voice says, listen to him. Remember, as I mentioned last week, they were there for an extended period of time. And according to Matthew's account, Elijah, Moses, and Jesus were talking about what Jesus was going to be doing, the rejection, the suffering, the cross and the resurrection. But in verse 8, it says suddenly, when they looked around, they no longer saw anyone with them except Jesus. As they were coming down the mountain, Jesus gave them strict orders not to tell anyone what they had seen until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. Can you imagine what was going through Peter James and John's mind as they're coming down from the mountain. They're told not to tell anyone. They had seen Christ in his majestic glory. And Jesus says, don't tell anyone. Until the Son of Man has risen from the dead. Back in chapter 8, when Peter, when Peter said to Jesus, you're the Christ. He warned them again not to tell anyone about him. So what did the 12 do? They kept the matter to themselves, discussing what rising from the dead meant. The three still aren't getting it. What's this rising from the dead mean? Well, someone's going to rise from the dead. You have to die. But they're still not at the point of grasping that. In verse 11, they respond and they ask him, Jesus, why do you or why do the teachers of the law say that Elijah must come first? See, it almost seems like they're trying to avoid the suffering, the rejection, the death. Because they want to go to Elijah, who is to restore all things. So their question, why do the teachers of the law say Elijah must come first? What's Jesus' answer? To be sure, Elijah does come first and restores all things. Why then is it written that the Son of Man must suffer much and be rejected? But I tell you, Elijah has come And they have done to him everything they wished, just as it is written about him. And we want to look at three parallel passages if we're going to understand Elijah. Let's go to Luke chapter 1. Luke chapter 1. Luke chapter 1. Luke chapter 1, we'll begin with verse 11. Luke 1 and verse 11 then an angel of the Lord appeared to him, standing at the right side of the altar of incense. When Zechariah saw him, he was startled and was gripped with fear. But the angel said to him, do not be afraid, Zechariah. Your prayer has been heard. Your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you're to give him the name John. He will be a joy and delight to you, and many will rejoice because of his birth. For he will be great in the sight of the Lord. He is never to take wine or other fermented drink. And he will be filled with the Holy Spirit, even from birth. Many of the people of Israel will be brought back to the Lord their God. And he will go on before the Lord in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to their children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the righteousness, or righteous to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. Clearly speaking of the birth of John the Baptist. And notice verse 17, he will go on before the Lord in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to their children, the disobedient to the wisdom of the righteous. Now with that thought in mind, let's go to the last book in the Old Testament, Malachi. Malachi chapter 4. Malachi chapter 4 <clears throat> and verse 5. See, I will send you the prophet Elijah before that great and dreadful day of the Lord comes. He will turn the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of the children to their fathers, or else I will come and strike the lamb with a curse. Now He talks about Elijah here in Luke 1 in giving the prediction of the birth of John the Baptist, Elijah is also mentioned. Let's go to Matthew chapter 17. Matthew chapter 17 and verse 9. Matthew's account of the transfiguration. Matthew 17 and verse 9. As they were coming down the mountain, Jesus instructed them, Don't tell anyone what you have seen until the Son of Man has been raised from the dead. The disciples asked him, Why then do the teachers of the law say that Elijah must come first? Jesus replied, To be sure, Elijah comes and will restore all things. But I tell you, Elijah has already come. And they did not recognize him, but have done to him everything they wished. In the same way the Son of Man is going to suffer at their hands. Then the disciples understood that he was talking to them about John the Baptist. Now back to chapter 9 of Mark. Jesus is responding to their question about Elijah coming first. And he says to be sure, Elijah does come first. He's talking about John the Baptist. And John the Baptist restored things, according to Matthew, according to Luke 1. In the sense that the hearts of fathers were turned to their children, and the hearts of children to their fathers, and people turned to the righteous. To be sure, Elijah does come first and restore all things. Then he raises a question in verse 12 Why then is it written that the Son of Man must suffer much and be rejected? So it's written that Elijah has come, he's going to restore all things. But why, must, why is it written the suffer, Son of Man must suffer many things? And again, I think that's a reference to what would have happened in the Old Testament where Christ's suffering is spoken of. Why is it written that the Son of Man must suffer much and be rejected? Well, the answer is given in verse 13. But I tell you, Elijah has come, and they have done to him everything they wished, just as it is written about him. Okay, the Elijah that is being referred to is none other than John the Baptist. As you look at Luke 1, as you look at Malachi chapter 4, along with Matthew chapter 17, Elijah has come, and what has happened to him? They have done to him everything they wished. John the Baptist, when he came, he was a prophet in the desert. But what happened to John the Baptist? He suffered a great deal. And then he was killed. So the question in the middle of verse verse 12, why then is it written that the Son of Man must suffer much and be rejected? Answer, Elijah came, they've done to him everything they wish, just as it is written about him. Just as Elijah, or John the Baptist, suffered and was killed, the same is true of Christ. Christ was transfigured before the three. His true nature came out. But the three were still thinking Messiahship, Messiahship, kingdom, kingdom. And Jesus says Elijah does come first and he restores all things. But just as Elijah, John the Baptist suffered much, so I'm going to suffer much also. There is no glory without suffering. For Christ. There is no kingdom of God without suffering. Now, as you think about verse 13, in the end of verse 12, the Son of Man suffering much and being rejected, and people did to Elijah or John the Baptist what they did. That would have resonated with the people to whom Mark is writing. Because the people at whom Mark was writing would have experienced persecution at Nero's hands. So what would they hear? John the Baptist suffered and he was killed. Christ, in his great glory, will suffer, be rejected, and be killed and come from the dead. So that means if we're following Christ, And we're suffering, we're being identified with Christ as John the Baptist was a forerunner of Christ. So we're sharing in the fellowship of Christ's sufferings. As Paul said, he wanted to know the suffering of Christ. He wanted to share in the suffering of Christ. Transfiguration. But suffering Jesus again reminding the 12 I'm sorry the 3 in this context that suffering rejection death comes before the resurrection and his glory the roman believers being reminded that suffering comes before glory consider that we or the Roman believers or the three do not live well for Christ if we come to him for what he will do for us if we come to Christ well what's he going to do people who follow Christ for who he is will suffer be rejected and die to be faithful to him See, the 12 had to understand, and in this context, the three had to get through their minds that Christ's glory cannot be a reality without suffering, rejection, and death. And apparently, they got it through their mind, the Spirit of God worked, because they later died for Christ. Sometimes we tend to begin the gospel with humans, not God and Christ. Would you like to go to heaven rather than talking about the creator God, sin, and Christ? Whether it be the 12, whether it be the three, or whether it be people today, is it any wonder some professing believers may not be sold out to Christ? Because they want the glory without a willingness to suffer, if it comes to that. Are you following Christ for what he will do for you? Or are you following Christ for who he is? Are you willing to suffer in following Christ? What's the point of Mark? To visibly, to demonstrate visibly to the questioning disciples the character, the being, and the identity of Jesus, and to affirm that the Messiah must suffer. To also encourage the Roman believers that Jesus is God's son who suffered He will experience glory, but before his glory came suffering. And you as Roman believers, you're suffering before you'll experience glory. You're being Christ-like in that happening. As we wrap it up, some applications. There's no Messiah without suffering. There is no discipleship without a willingness to suffer. The road to glory goes through suffering. Think about that. Ponder that. Do we realize the glory we have in Christ today? Do we live in light of being in Christ? It seems we're tempted at times to maybe make excuses for how we live other than grasping the glory we possess in Christ. Now stop and ponder the time period in which we live. Christ has been rejected. He has suffered. He has died. He has come from the dead. And Paul writes in Colossians that it's Christ in us, the hope of glory. The one who was transfigured before the 12, the one who said, I must suffer, I must be rejected, I must die, I will come from the dead. They saw him in his glory. Christ in you, the hope of glory today. But that came through the road of suffering, through the road of rejection. Ponder that. Think about that that the one who was transfigured, who was rejected, who suffered, who died, who rose from the dead, is in us today. Because he was willing to suffer, to be rejected, to die, and to come from the dead. Christianity is about Christ. Period. The twelve are beginning to get it. The three didn't get it. Jesus talked to them again about suffering, rejection, death, and his resurrection. They saw him in his glory. And that glorious Christ is the one who lives in the believer. The one who is our life. As we think about that, what song may encourage you to be faithful to Christ? I'm going to give you some opportunity to Select some favorite songs. What song is an encouragement to move you to being faithful to Christ as Travis comes to lead us?